It is good to be back. When I was growing up in the glorious state of Indiana, my grandparents had a house and a yard that seemed almost magical to us kids. Along one side of their yard were huge, thick bushes, massive trees, back in the day a lot of elm trees, oak trees, and they all served to protect a a drop to a creek that was completely shaded and absolutely beautiful. And it ran the whole length of the side of my grandparents' property. When I was a four or five-year-old, I was convinced that years ago pirates used to hang out in there. Uh, You know, it was just just almost encased creek. On the other side of their yard, my grandmother had this large rose garden. I think at the, I don't know, 90 years ago, it had been like this cement pool, but they had filled it in, turned it into a rose garden with a lot of pretty stone and these massive rose bushes in different sections that just gleamed in the light of the summer. But best of all, all the way along the back of their um, yard was the St. Joe River, where there was swimming and fishing and water ski galore, water skiing galore. And every August, there was a Jumpin' Joe's ski show. But when we were little, I mean, you know, four or five, that place, that yard, that setting was wonderful for playing that sophisticated game called hide-and-seek. And we would go down to the creek and hide. We'd get behind rose bushes. We'd race from tree to tree. And when you're that little, you're absolutely convinced that when you're hiding in some bushes that no one in the universe can find you. We loved hiding. Over the years, if there's one thing I've learned as a pastor is that we all continue to hide. We all hide. And it doesn't matter how old we are. Julie is a young mother with two children. One of her children has special needs. When Julie looks at other young moms and and their family, she comes away feeling hopelessly inadequate. As a matter of fact, she's starting to feel like she's losing her ability to cope. But no one knows, not even her husband. Stephen was raised in the church, went to Christian schools. But all along the way, he harbored serious, significant doubts about God. No one knew until his suicide note. Claudia was a young professional, got a wonderful job, but boy, is it stressful. And so Claudia feels overwhelmed and not quite sure where to turn, but she won't let anybody in. And Claudia herself is not aware that her drinking problem is bigger, is a big deal, I should say. Big deal. Andrew, Andrew hides where he goes on his cell phone, what he looks at on his computer. Jack is loud. And the things Jack says to his teenage son, he wouldn't want anyone to hear, and no one probably ever will. 
Because Jack doesn't have any friends. Jack doesn't let people close. Jack hides. Ever since Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden and first hid from God among the trees, humans have been hiding ever since. We hide from God, we hide from others, we hide from people that are casual acquaintance, but we even hide from people we know well, family, spouses. Sometimes it's little things like, hi, how you doing? I'm doing fine, and you're not doing fine at all, but you got to move on. Other times we hide big league things like addictions or crippling insecurity, or fear, or anxiety, or guilt, or bitterness, or lust. And we pretend we live a lie. Today, what I want to do is I want to look at the beauty and the potency of the Christian alternative. And the Christian alternative is community. open, encouraging, life-changing, gospel-centered community. And I want to turn to the Bible, and I want to look at what the Bible says, why community matters so much, and then how it can help us overcome this tendency we all have to hide. So let's go near the end of the New Testament. We're going to look at two passages in the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews that give us two different reasons why community matters so much. So Hebrews chapter 3, and we'll pick it up in verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as, it's, as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now Hebrews is called Hebrews because it's written to Jewish Christians. But some of these first century Jews that were in these early churches hadn't yet come to Christ and were in danger of turning away from the free offer of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, what we call salvation by grace. And apparently, according to the argument of Hebrews, we're wanting to return back to a Jewish form of salvation by works, something, by the way, the Old Testament never taught. So that's why we read in verse 12, or we have in verse 12, I should say, these two words, turns away. Those two words translate one word in the Greek. It's a Greek word, apostasize, a word we've transliterated into English. It's a turning away, the rejection of Jesus Christ. It's a very serious matter. A matter, um, when I go back, when I think back to my experience as a young Christian in college, one of the things that struck me is we had this dynamic student ministry going on our, our, our campus, but every now and then, a student would say, wouldn't say it, but would in effect check out, reject Christ, and go live like crazy. They'd been a part of the ministry, and suddenly they were gone. They wanted nothing to do with any of us Christians or anything to do with Christianity. It didn't happen a lot, but when it happened, it was noticeable. 
And I didn't understand what was going on, but years later, I, I finally realized that these people that were rejecting Christ had never come to Christ in the first place. Now, I mention that because that's the situation here that's behind the purpose for this letter. It's a problem, but that's not the problem I want to talk about. The problem I want to talk about is in verse 13. It's an equally significant problem. So look at verse 13 and go to the end of the verse. The problem according to the end of the verse isn't just sin, it's the deceitfulness of sin because it's the deceitfulness of sin that causes our hearts to harden. Now you and I don't wake up usually in the morning and say, man, I'm really looking forward to today. I can't wait to be deceived. You know, we don't say, man, I hope people are going to lie to me today. Man, I hope Satan's going to pull one over and totally deceive me today. Uh, you know, we don't say, man, I can't wait for today to unfold because I want to live in self-deception in four or five major areas of my life. No. But look at the end of verse 13. This is exactly what the verse says sin does to us. It deceives us, and because it's deception, we don't even know it's happening. That's the problem with deception. So, for example, it's Satan back to the Garden of Eden saying to Adam and Eve, go ahead, eat the fruit. Man, you'll be like God. Deception. It's David as he's watching Bathsheba, uh, talking to himself, uh, telling himself, well, we don't know what he was thinking. Well, I'm the king. I can do this. Or, man, things have been rough lately. I... I need to relax a little, or Bathsheba's beautiful, or any number of things. Deception. It's Peter in the New Testament saying, man, if I stand up for Jesus Christ in this moment, then these people are going to kill me as a follower of Christ. So not once, not twice, but three times Peter denied Christ. Deception. It's exactly what God warned Cain of back in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. When Cain was downcast, Cain was struggling because of the ascendancy, if you will, of his brother Abel. So God comes to Cain and God says to Cain, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. And its desire is to master you. And it did, because apparently Cain rationalized, convinced himself that it was okay, that it was necessary, and he went ahead and murdered his brother Abel. Look at how Paul Tripp talks about this in his daily devotional. I'm a blind man. As much as I would like to think that I see and know myself well, it just isn't true. Because sin blinds me to me. As long as there is still sin inside me, there will be pockets of blindness in my view of me. It's actually more serious than what I have just described. Because whereas every physically blind person knows that he is blind, spiritually blind people are blind to their blindness. They actually think that they see when in fact they don't. Man, I hope you hear that. I hope you understand that about yourself. 
that you have blind spots, and by definition, you're blind to those blind spots? What Dr. Tripp is saying is that sin deceives. Now, that's the problem. It's the end of verse 13. Let's go to the solution. The solution is found at the beginning of verse 13. And I got to tell you, it's surprising. In a way, it's shocking. It's not what we would expect. It's also the solution proposed in verse 13 is frightening, it's intimidating, and it's humbling. Because the solution at the beginning of verse 13 is that the key to overcoming self-deceit is community. Our relationships, authentic, real, transparent relationships in the body of Christ. So what does the verse say? The verse says, encourage one another daily so that none of you will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. In other words, we need to admit, we need to come to the place in our life and continually come to that place where we can admit that we need the very people we attempt to hide from. The shocking truth of this passage is is that an accurate knowledge of yourself only comes when you are actively engaged in open, honest, encouraging community. Encourage one another. And it's community here, our passage is suggesting, that keeps you from being deceived. from being stuck behind your blind spots, from the walls that you build in order to hide. It's community, according to these verses, that's how the Holy Spirit grows us, builds us. I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I will, because I think it's the providence of God. Just this week, as I'm preparing this passage, Someone took me out to lunch and said, Rob, I got a couple of things I want to talk to you about. We talked about those, and then near the end, he said, but I got, I got another thing I want to talk to you about. And he said, Rob, I love you, but man, you can get critical. You can be way too critical. And I'm sitting there, and you know how we react to that kind of feedback, and the inner lawyer inside me is rising up to prepare a defense, and I didn't. I just stopped, and I I thought about it, and I said, you know, give me some examples. He gave me some examples, and he was right. It's a blind spot in my life. It's an area of self-deceit. And the point is, hear me in this, you can't know yourself by yourself. It just can't happen. So in the Old Testament, Queen Esther hid her identity as a Jew from everyone, including her husband, the king of Persia. Now that began to become a problem when the king of Persia issued a decree to annihilate all the Jews in that massive kingdom. 
So God raised up a man by the name of Mordecai, who was also a Jew, who began to communicate with Esther. And in effect, he said, Esther, uh, you have to come clean. You have to go to your husband and tell him your ethnicity and beg for mercy for the Jews. And Mordecai said to Esther, who knows, maybe God has raised you up for such a time as this. And Esther did. She went to the king, and the king relented, and the Jews were saved. And what I want you to know from that story is Mordecai is a picture of the body of Christ in action. He's a a picture of why community matters. Esther would have never gotten there on her own. And so I wonder, who's your Mordecai? Who are your Mordecais? Who are the people that come to you and say, hey, Rob, I love you, but man, I got to tell you, in this area, you need to change. Who are your Mordecais? Who are helping you? with the areas where you're blind, lest you be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. To the extent you protect yourself from others, you will not know yourself. Now that's Hebrews 3. Let's go on to Hebrews 10. Turn to chapter 10. Turn ahead a couple chapters. We want to pick it up in verse 19. We read beginning in verse 19. This is a glorious passage. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we now have confidence to enter the most holy place, can you imagine by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, Jesus. It's a reference to Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. And since we have a great priest, that would be Jesus over the house of God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. There's three parts here in this part of Hebrews chapter 10 that I want to mention. The first section, the first part, is what we just read. And it contains one of the most glorious, one of the strongest New Testament calls to courage and faith, uh, to live by courage and faith in light of our union in Jesus Christ, in light of our identity as children of grace. And so the metaphors just pile on one after another. We've been cleansed, we've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, by receiving the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We've been given a hope because we've been given a new identity as children of the King of Kings, children of grace, members, family members of the household of the living God. All because of the work of Christ. Now, if you skip down two verses to verse 26, the tone completely changes. And here we have the third section. I'll sample it by reading verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, or of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. 
and these verses get stronger and stronger. So here, what's going on, we are reminded of our additional identity as sinners. And we are warned to turn away from sin in the strongest possible language, lest we trample Jesus underfoot, lest we insult the spirit of grace. So that's the third section. It begins in verse 26. Now let's go to the middle section, verses 24 and 25. Let's read, beginning in verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Just as in chapter 3, this call to community does not seem to fit here. I mean, it is wedged between two passages on our identity, our dual identity as Christians. Children of grace, sinners. And so the question we must ask of the text here is, well, why is this here? Why is this little section wedged between these two larger sections on our identity? And the answer is because it's telling us the second thing about community. And what it's telling us is active participation in the body of Christ is not only the way we overcome self-deceit, chapter 3, it's how we figure out our identity in Jesus Christ, how we continue to remember who we are in Christ, how we hold on to this dual identity so we experience joy because we're children of grace and we experience humility because we're still flawed still broken, still struggling. So, it's healthy, safe, open community with other Christians that not only delivers us from deception, but reminds us of who we are, helps us to understand who we are and how deep our struggle with sin continues to be. In other words... This frees us up to stop hiding. I'm a child of grace. I'm a sinner. Everybody struggles. We just struggle in different ways. Now, in commenting on this passage, Paul Tripp, again, in a different source, says this. I need people who will confront my timidity and avoidance with the comforting, encouraging, emboldening realities of faith. I am a child of the amazing grace of Emmanuel, God ever with me. I was not wired to walk this walk of faith by myself. I was not created, then recreated in Christ to live on my own. I must admit to my constant tendency to minimize both the grace I have been given and the sin that is the reason I need it so. I must face the fact that many times I simply forget who I am. And this is the point of chapter 10. This is why in between these two sections on identity, we have this call to community. Now let me illustrate the potency of this. Following the death of our two spouses... Rhonda Williams and I began to, gate, to date. Rhonda's sitting right here so she can deny the lies in this. 
but we did it quietly because we simply didn't want the church to know about it. We've been through a lot of pain. We wanted to kind of figure things out. And frankly, we were still bleeding, and we were, we were cautious. And, and we didn't want people to start to talk. As a matter of fact, we were so tentative that Rhonda broke up with me multiple times, absolutely convinced that being married to a pastor would be impossible. And I thought, well, what's the big deal? You're a busy pediatrician. I didn't say that to her. But what, unfa- what kept me, I, I need to say, unfazed through Rhonda's multiple breakups and what kept me persevering, and it was like I didn't miss a beat, uh, was Rhonda's character. And let me be more specific. Even though Rhonda had experienced so much pain, I observed that it never caused her to withdraw from any, I mean, any level of community here at Wheaton Bible Church. She stayed actively engaged, even though suddenly she was single, suddenly uh, she was a single parent, suddenly she was a, a widow. And she allowed uh, people into her life, and people held her up. And people comforted her and helped her with holidays and helped her do some of the stuff that only uh, Tom could do and did. And it was a beautiful thing for me to watch as Rhonda's pastor. And as a result, now, now you hear this, as a result, even though the grief was great, she was never overwhelmed by the grief. And grief, by the way, will do that if you don't push back. And as a result, she stood against those lies we all face in the, you know, times of acute crisis. The lie that God isn't there, God doesn't care, or if you just believed more, this would have never happened. They're all lies. Because Rhonda, instead of being overwhelmed by grief, was focused on God's love. Her identity is a child of God. And in her greatest crisis, it was community that enabled her to cling to her identity. The point of these two passages is that human life is fundamentally relational. that God designed us to walk the walk of faith with others. It's a community project. And what we see here is the community is God's divine alternative to our tendency, our tendency, your tendency, my tendency to hide. According to Hebrews 3, it's how we keep from being deceived. According to Hebrews 10, it's how we live in light of who we are. The joy, children of grace, the the humility, you know, man, I still struggle. I'm still a sinner. We know that God's not surprised by our struggles, by other people's struggles, and God is a God of hope, so we cling to him. So that is community and the Bible. Now I want to transition to community and Wheaton Bible Church. We'll talk more about this next week. 
And then I would conclude by talking about community and the gospel. So when it comes to community in light of these passages and so many other passages, i got to tell you, this is why we've been thinking, planning, praying, looking at what's going on around the world and with other our churches to launch this fall. That's why we're so excited to launch this fall these sermon-based small groups we call life groups that start with this 10-week session called Rooted. Now, take out this insert you have in your worship folder that is entitled Rooted. And I want to say something. I think it's important for me to say this in my role as the lead pastor here. A couple years ago, we weren't, but now we are a multi-campus ministry. And we believe, and we state this in our values, that small groups are the spinal column of community. Because as we expand and we launch additional sites, often the physical space is going to be limited. And so our only option is going to be home-based small groups. And so we believe that small groups are the spinal column, the future spinal column, the current spinal column, of community, and specifically that these life groups talked about here that are launched with a 10-week session called Rooted are the best kind of community for the most people in our church. These two passages teach us that discipleship happens in relationships. Now, did you hear me? What God's Word is teaching us is that discipleship happens in relationships. And we believe life groups are the primary way you will avoid avoid blind spot self-deception and avoid forgetting who you are in Christ. So, man, I want to ask you to take this and register online. Or take this insert and go out to the table in the atrium right after this service. If you have questions, ask your questions. And I want you to know you can sign up individually. You can sign up with friends. You can bring your entire group into the rooted life group experience. We are praying that hundreds and hundreds of people will step into rooted this fall. Because we want all of you to grow and to be all you can be in Jesus Christ. Now, let me conclude by talking about the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is stepping into a small group can be really, really intimidating, awkward, uncomfortable. Uh, you're, You're asking me to join a group with people I don't know? I mean, what are they going to be like? Uh, I'm really busy. uh, Ten weeks of my time? A weekly commitment? And and so we have doubts. We have fears. We, you know, it's a risk. And on the other side of risk is fear. And what's the solution? The solution is the gospel. 
It's you and I fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ, who in love entered into the community of humanity and so longs for community with us that he was willing to suffer, to be rejected, to to be crucified, that he might enjoy a relationship with you and me. You talk about community. And when I keep my eyes on Jesus, when I fix my eyes on Jesus, and the wonder what he has done to establish community with me, then I know I'm completely accepted. I'm completely free. And I am free to love and to be loved just as I am. Because I have nothing to prove. Another way to say this biblical truth is that community isn't something you add to your already busy schedule with prayer and Bible study and service and worship. Community is the context in which we do all of life. It's a context in which we do all of these things. Uh, Yesterday, I think it was yesterday, I was reading in the book of Ephesians, and in Ephesians, Paul says, once you were alienated, but now in Jesus Christ, you have been brought near, drawn near. Because I love you, I want to ask you to live that, to draw near, to get into a group. Let's pray. Uh, Father, forgive us for underestimating biblical community. We know it's hard. We know it's full of ups and downs and awkwardness. But give us the grace to hear this call to see how we desperately need one another. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.